When you think of great duos, who do you think of? Jordan and Pippen or LeBron and Dwayne Wade. I mean, I talk about basketball a lot here on this podcast, but for the Barcelona version, there's PK and Puyol or PK and Mascherano or the easy example of Xavi and Iniesta. And as you can hear from my voice, the perfect teammates aren't just professional athletes. It's cold season. I guess the flu and cold medicine, perfect teammates as well. But in this case, when it comes to growing your business, that's you and Shopify. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. To be honest, I've been doing this show long enough. And as I mentioned, it's cold and flu season. You hear it in my voice, especially during the holiday season. So whenever it comes to this business, anything that I can set up and kind of have working in the background that I know and can trust is just plugging along without my attention. Those are the things that I really value at this point. So when my brain is foggy, all I can do is manage to turn on the microphone, talk to the guest, or just talk to myself and get out a piece of content. Everything else, having that all automated or working in the background, that's been important to keeping me sane. And that's the thing about something like Shopify. What I do love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. So no matter how big or small, how good of a month or how bad of a month, things are just the same working in the background. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is a global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs on every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tbpod, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash tbpod now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash tbpod. Welcome to the Barcelona Podcast, episode 108. I'm this whole opinion brought to you by the most influential voices in the FC Barcelona community. I'm Dan Hilton, joined by my guest co-host for the day, Patrick, from FCB Dublin Peña, or the Peña Balgrana Dublin, our friends based in Ireland. How are you today, Patrick? I'm good, Dan. Thanks for having me on. And we'll get right into it. As we do have an international break, it seems like there's a lull, but whenever there's a lull, Patrick, the news heats up and that cauldron of gossip and, and all that garbage kind of does start to fester. And so the question we have today is, may come off as a, a negative La Grande Pagunta, but I don't think it really is. I think it's something where we're asking, is there concern over Ernesto Valverde's handling of the team? But you know, the more research I did on this, and we'll get to the different parts of this, whether it's how he's handling the situation with Arturo Vidal or the substitutes or even the rotation, the more research on this, Patrick, I seem to do indicates that Valverde is actually a guy that's handling the team pretty well and that the decisions he's making are just not necessarily yielding the results that it did a year ago without much difference. And I, I think we'll start here with the substitutes. And I do bear both you and the listeners, with me for just a moment. I wrote down basically every sub that we've made throughout the year and the players that have subbed in for which players. And an interesting note that did kind of stick out to me where there was criticism of Alverde's subs after that 1-1 draw with Valencia, 
when he subbed in Dembele for Coutinho in the 84th minute and Rafinha for Arthur in the 88th. And the criticism there was that the match was still obviously much in question. There was a winning goal to be scored for Barcelona, and yet with Coutinho seemingly on his last legs, and obviously we know that Rakitic has played um, an uncomfortable amount of minutes, Valverde was holding his players on the bench and didn't insert new players into the game. But that said, in the loss against Leganes, the substitutes came in the 61st, in the 70th, and the 71st minute. And then Bilbao, which is also a draw, 1-1, 51st, 55th, and 80th. On average, Valverde subs in in the 71st minute as the average time of the sub. And even if you take get rid of the four halftime changes that have been made so far this year, that's still the 74th minute on average. So while it does seem like Valverde is waiting longer and longer, Yes, he's not an early subber, so that average you'd hope would be in the late 60s, but it's in the early 70s, which does kind of indicate that he is making changes. And other than that Valencia match, he's made all three changes in every match so far this year, so it's not like he's using a short bench either. Yeah, it's interesting, and I think last season he was quite good at reacting to other teams' tactics. A lot of the substitutes he brought in seemed to work well at the time. Um, I think... uh, these things always look worse when the results are going the wrong way. Um, rather than the substitutions, I would find um, the defense a bigger issue. I, I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, I mean, so that quickly kind of does take us from subs into rotation. And when I was going through the subs, one of the worrying thing is, while only two subs have been made so far this year due to injury, or excuse me, three subs, but, but that said, while those substitutions have all kind of taken place with a lot of Dempele, a lot of Vidal, a lot of Coutinho coming off the field, and Semedo being taken off twice at halftime. For all of those different notes, as you mentioned the defense, Alba has only subbed on once and has never been subbed off. And again, that's been a worrying thing about the depth with the left-back position, and we'll get to the transfers on him in La Ronda. And by transfers of Alba, I do mean a potential backup for him at a first-team level. And Gerard Piquet speaking both about rotation and substitutes, there's been no person to supplement PK. And so PK, for all the performances he's had, good or bad, has not been taken off the field either. And to me, those are the more worrying signs because it seems like everyone else is kind of sharing the wealth. And obviously, Messi's a guy that you only take off when Messi chooses to come off. And with him not getting the start in just one match this year against Bilbao, just to wind up coming in for Vidal, 55th minute of that draw against Bilbao only to play the way he did against Tottenham it seems to me the performance against Tottenham sticks out as a, a landmark vote of confidence for Valverde in that resting Messi and resting certain players before those big big Champions League matches seems to be something that if you can get a draw against Bilbao and not start Messi it's something that that Kool-Aids are going to have to deal with and it does and instead of talking about the importance of the different competitions and trying to weigh them we'll do that in La Ronda the rotation as, as you mentioned, Patrick, seems to be fine up top and generally okay in the midfield with Rakitic being, again, not really substituted, not really rested. He's the worrying one for me. But other than Rakitic, the back line and the substitution pattern there is honestly the, the biggest red flag here and the worrying, the worrying sign for me. Yeah, I think there's like a core group of players he's really dependent on, um, even going back to last season. And he doesn't seem to want to take them off. Um, you mentioned a few of them there, PK, Rakitic, uh, Messi, obviously, um, Alba, 
that, you know, and I think I think that's why in, in certain games last season they looked a bit flat. Whereas as you were saying, they wrestled players against Bilbao and looked a lot sharper against Spurs. Um, so that would kind of bring into question: Well, what is Valverde focusing on this season? Is it La Liga or the Champions League? And as you said, we're we're kind of going to go into that that in a bit more detail. But um, yeah, it is interesting because I think last season, given the way he kind of took over uh, what happened with Neymar, the fact that um, Real Madrid looked so dominant in the Super Cup, I think he had to concentrate on La Liga just to kind of build confidence and take it from there. Um, and then as a result, as I said, they looked a little bit flat, particularly the, the Roma game in the Champions League. So I, I would welcome more rotation, but um, if, if it comes at drawn matches... I, I don't know how effective it's going to be in the long term. Well, that is the worrying reason why journalists and Kool-Aid alike are frustrated at Barcelona's current form in the Liga. They're now winless in four games in a row in the Liga. Last time this happened was 2005-2006. And if you're doing the math at home, that's 15 points in the first eight rounds. And there's even rumors this week that have come up that obviously you shouldn't believe that are very, very far-fetched. They're is enough of a vote of confidence in Valverde that he wouldn't lose his job unless there was a, a, a major string of negative results, not necessarily winless results. Because, again, there's a draw against Valencia with Valencia struggling in the table, but looking at the strength of Valencia a season ago, and the same thing with Bilbao, who seemed to have turned some things around, those are not draws that you get frustrated by. And Leganes really winds up that loss is kind of what you call punch in the mouth, where you get the bottom team in the Liga desperate for a victory and Barcelona didn't have their best on that day and to me as I've said in the past that shows the depth of La Liga but that said it seems like Real Madrid and Lepertegui is where there's a, a lot of a lot more pressure where people have said that if Real Madrid were not in worse form than Barcelona at the moment that Valverde would have already lost his job but I, I think that's not only too much gossip too much far-fetched but I, I think it's you know absolute rubbish but where this also comes into play in the faith that Kool-Aid's are losing in Valverde is his track record. Now, unlike unlike managers in the past that, that Barcelona have had, I mean, even like a Luis Enrique, where it seems like every step up that they went up a coaching ladder, they succeeded at, at the place below them. But Valverde, you can't really say he's a guy that had astounding results or, or, or was a guy that you would pin as taking that next step in the way that his teams played below you. It wasn't that if you had if he had better players below him at those levels that they would have played this different style. I think Valverde was always going to play the style he played at Athletic, he played at Olympiacos, and even in his brief brief moments managing Espanyol. Because looking back at the managing career of Valverde, in 657 matches between Athletic, both the first team and Bilbao Athletic, Espanyol, Olympiacos on two occasions, Villarreal, Valencia, and Athletic again, his teams have scored just 1.78 points per match in league tables. And then in 70 matches with Barcelona, the number goes up to 2.29 points per match. And aside from those two trips, though, to Olympiacos, where you're playing in the Greek League, and Olympiacos being one of the two or three biggest clubs, and Olympiacos, honestly, in the last 20 years, is the biggest club in Greece— no other stop that he's ever made yielded a higher than two points per match average. And the worrying side to that for me is that he's a guy that does know how to grind out results. He's a guy that does know how to get draws. 
but it always seems that Valverde has never been the manager who knows how to get that killer instinct late. And while he made some good substitutions last year, those look like more and more as if it was a little bit of first-year luck. And now in year two, when opponents are a little more aware of what Valverde's trying to do, and he has all these new players, having lost Polino and Inesta in the midfield, those substitutions just become that much more important. And obviously the way he's utilizing Malcolm is part of that equation as well. Yeah, I think... Um... Olympiacos have won 19 out of the last 21 Greek league titles. So it would suggest to me that it's not a very difficult league to win, um, especially because financially they have big backing compared to the other Greek teams. I, he strikes me as a, a manager that's you know very good with like kind of average and uh, slightly better than average teams. Um, outside of Olympiacos, I think the only thing he's won was the Super Cup with Bilbao. Um, so uh, it's that kind of he's steady and dependable but he's quite conservative and I'm not sure that really fits in with Barcelona as a club particularly their playing style but particularly with the players they have now this season I mean last season you could kind of get away with that because Neymar left uh, Dembele got injured almost straight away so there was a kind of Lack. There was no one else kind of really to look at. Really, Delefeo actually came in, but he had a couple of good games and then seemed to go backwards. So in a way, they, not that they needed to play conservatively, but it helped them. But I think that maybe was going to happen anyway when Valverde came in. Uh, and it just kind of happened to suit what was happening with Barcelona at the time. One other thing I do want to bring up, when he did show up was that Valverde had had this reputation and this is now we're seeing probably a byproduct of Bilbao that at Bilbao the only real way you have of integrating new talent into your squad is the other than the very very occasional Basque player that comes in or back to the club in those transfer windows but by and large you get it all from the academy and promote from within and Bilbao is also a team that has much older B squads where a lot of the guys at Bilbao Athletic wind up being 22, 23, 24 years old before they really get a shot at the Bilbao first team, which is a little older than you'd see for a lot of these other secondary teams. But that said, for all this idea coming in that Valverde was going to debut all these young players, so far Dembele is the youngest Barcelona player to debut in an official match under him in La Liga at 20 years and three months old. Malcolm is second at 21, five months old. Arthur is the youngest Champions League debut in Valverde. He's 22 years, one month when it, he debuted against PSV. And now while Elena, Puj, and Miranda would conceivably be the only ones younger than Dembele who even have a contention, or even in contention, to get a debut under Valverde, they haven't gotten a sniff. They haven't, none of the three, and we've talked about Elena rounding into form and trying to get healthy, Eleni has now been healthy for almost a month, so we're getting to the point where Eleni, again, not even getting a sniff of the first-team bench, doesn't seem that the three, while they have a great vote of confidence on their training with the first team, you wonder when they're ever even going to get a shot. And the competition, though, this season, you look at Denis Suarez, he's getting bench opportunities, but he's obviously, as we would assume, not anywhere close to the field. The thing with Valverde, and, and Denis Suarez also was in a spring chicken, he's in his now mid-20s, 
But under Valverde, that, that idea that he was going to be integrating new blood into the, the squad with all the transfers that came in, and we can also tell that Valverde, it's kind of been well-reported, wasn't really excited about the transfer of Malcolm, and we're seeing that, whether it's a little bit of a player's attitude, but maybe just the way that the player is not meshing with the, the coaching staff or whatever what, what have you, Malcolm not even being called up to certain squad lists of late is a worrying sign, and he did make some appearances at the beginning, but by and large, we haven't heard much at all from a player that costs close to 40 million euro. So the whole thing about Valverde injecting youth in the squad seems to be so far a misnomer, but as you mentioned, it's all really coming down to the goals and what we expect from the club at the end of the season, and it seems to me that if you look at the 4 nothing win against PSV, the 4-2 against Tottenham, and even the way that they're getting the draws in La Liga, and it's seemingly all the major clubs across Europe are struggling, and we'll get again that to more in La Ronda, but we've seen Real Madrid stumble out of the gate, and even Sevilla and Atletico Madrid. Atletico Madrid, they were worried that they were going to be off the pace after the first four matches of the season, and now they're above Barcelona in the table. And it seems that all of those big clubs are, are going through this this struggling period and time for ad- adapting when you have an influx of all new players. And so I think Valverde, has, again, I would say his handling so far has not been the way that it was last year where he really did get lightning in the bottle with his substitutions and he didn't rotate at all. So we, again, it, no harm, no foul at the beginning of the season because he wasn't rotating. So you felt good about the results, but now that he has to rotate to worry about the spring to make up for a season ago, it seems that Valverde, to me, needs a little more patience and a little more time because unlike last year when it was immediate results and we felt good about the way the season was going, his season this year is not going to be judged until April or May. So I think he really does deserve a long leash here. Yeah, that's true. But also you're going to mention his, his track record as well. And um, I, I don't know. I, personally, I don't think it bodes that well. Um I think the the Roma match was a humbling experience. If if it was a really quality team, you know, you could put your hands up and say it was a bad day. But um, Roma were were hammered by Liverpool in the next round, so I, do, I don't think they're a great team. And yet they made Barcelona look very average. Um, I would, you know, I won't put the blame totally at Valverde's feet, but um, his kind of lack of attack and um, intuition. And again, we're seeing it again this season. Um, Malcolm, you mentioned Malcolm there. I know he was injured, but he's been back now for a couple of weeks. We haven't seen him since. Um, the other players he's had, um, I won't say a fallen out, but he's been critical of Coutinho. Apparently, according to the media, he said that Coutinho um, doesn't offer the team any balance. I would actually say the opposite. I think when Coutinho's in the team as an attacking side, they look far more better. Um, but balance to him is based on defence rather than um, a- actual balance, which you know you'd want the team good at defending and attacking. Whereas he just seems to want to defend, and then he hopes Messi will come up with some bit of genius, which he normally does. But the problem is, if you're depending on Messi week in week out, and we're seeing this with Argentina in the World Cup. There's only so much one player can do, and it's it's very easy to shut out a player, just one single player. Just don't give him the space. There's nothing any player can do about that. Um, I think if he brought in Malcolm or Dembele, who's another player he's criticised, he said when he got injured 
that an older player wouldn't have made the move he did, which is I think it was a back heel which led to his injury. To me, he was he was only twenty at the time, and I th- he'd only turned twenty, so the, there was a lot of pressure on him coming in. He was the second highest transfer in history, and now he he realised he'd be out for a few months, and on top of that. His manager is now criticising him. Now, he was right, but to do it publicly, I think, is wrong. And I noticed there is a trend that he seems to criticise attacking players more than defensive players. Um, just the point of Dennis Suarez, you mentioned there. I thought Dennis Suarez was really good coming off the bench last season, but he hasn't given him a chance at all this season. I don't know if that's maybe because down to um, Arthur. Maybe he doesn't see there, there's room for Suarez in the team with Arthur being there. But it does all seem to kind of lean more to he's very conservative. And I'm not sure that's good for Barcelona because they are a traditionally attacking team. So when they're playing defensively, it looks like they've, you know, they've almost given up before they've started. And uh, again, I go back to Europe, they do that quite a lot. Now, in some matches, it kind of worked well. Um, against Real Madrid and the Bernabeu last season, they kind of stood off them a little bit and counter-attacked and it worked very effectively but I, I don't know I think for a team of Barcelona given the talent that they have it would be better to be proactive and more attacking and I think players with would offer more um, I think he always looks for players with that defend first like when Alex Vidal was there he played on, on the the right side in midfield but he was almost a defender an extra defender I think that's kind of what um Valverde looks for first is defensiveness, and then he hopes Messi will, will produce something, which I don't, I, you know, when you've other attacking players there, why, why depend on just one? And a lot of the recent managers in the past, and you look at Guardiola's Man City at the moment, but there have been managers since then at Barcelona, whether it was, it was obviously Villanova, or whether it was, or whether it was Enrique, and not so much Tata Martino, but a lot of the recent managers of Barcelona, again, starting with Pep, they didn't necessarily adapt to their opponents. And if they, were, if they knew their opponent was going to do X, Y, Z, that didn't mean that Barcelona were going to try to counterattack that. It meant that Barcelona were going to try to play the way that they wanted to play that entire, the entire time. And when we talk about different weapons, that Arthur against Dembele debate is one I think in the future on future pods that we're really going to have to spend time with trying to figure out almost two minds of Barcelona that while Arthur has been very, very bright and people have been very impressed by him, I think to the point of almost overrating what he's done so far, but he's been so terrific in getting Kules to feel the way that they want to feel when they're watching Barcelona. I know that sounds so silly and vague, but I just mean in not just possession, but in control of the game, in keeping purposeful possession and not making the defense susceptible to those counterattacks, particularly in the middle of the field. If you lose it, you lose it out wide. And that said, Dembele, who was losing the ball out wide and up the field, Dembele just wasn't able to make, even though he was scoring, seemed to be on this, this scoring string and scoring run, it seemed that Barcelona as a whole were not as strong as they were or have been in the last few games where Arthur has helped Busquets and Rakitic to not only control that midfield, but to push everything forward as a unit in the way that Dembele can use his speed and his physical gifts to get out wide. And Barcelona almost play a different way with those two players in the lineup where everybody else kind of does the exact same job that they've been doing this whole time. And Coutinho being the third 
of that three musketeer of how Barcelona are going to play the is he a winger is he a midfielder where can he best suit Barcelona and not even where can he best suit Barcelona but where does best Barcelona best have the, an 11 or best have a, a game plan against opposition and I, I would be curious to see if you looked back at each match individually and tried to see what was the formation and why did Valverde choose to play Coutinho in the midfield or Coutinho on the wing because right now it just seems like it's a run of games where Dembele was hot scoring goals making an impact so he got a bunch of starts in a row and now we've seen Coutinho and on the wing and Arthur in the midfield for the last few games and that was certainly working against Tottenham it seemed to be the right formula so now Valverde seems to be riding that so it, it does appear that the manager is riding the hot formation at the moment the one that's working for Barcelona and I don't think that's wrong in the long term but as we transition right into La Ronda, Deb Deep asks, all things in our game plan staying the same as Valencia, that being continue out on the wing and Arthur in the middle. With the inclusion of a player like Paco Alcacer, considering the form he is in now at Borussia Dortmund, would that make in the central role give the ability to capitalize on a little more of those scoring chances? And this is a question more about Luis Suarez, but it is a point that with Luis Suarez playing where he's playing and Messi trying to, again, always fill that space and be where he is, I guess Deb Deep is kind of transitioning and asking, would these formations work with a Pauka Alcacer where you couldn't really, again, still even play Messi with both he and Suarez? And it was decision-making that I've already had to do. Yeah, I, I think just on the point with Paco, I, I think maybe he came to Barcelona maybe a couple of seasons too early. I, I think he's going to be a quality player, but um, it was it was just too early in his career, I felt. Because he is, he's shown it now. He's he's a quality forward, but um, I I don't see why um Arthur and Dembele can't start in the same lineup. Arthur's more of a midfielder, um, Dembele an attacking winger. So if it's like say if we're going four three three, Arthur would be in the the midfield tree and Dembele in the attacking tree. I would actually really like to see um how that would work. I would love to see Rakitic rested for a few matches and a midfield maybe of uh, Busquets. I prefer Coutinho in midfield because I think he's more influenced over the game. Sometimes he looks a little bit lost out in the wing and the attacking lineup of the attacking tree of Messi, Dembele and Suarez see how, how that works. But it must be frustrating for some of the other players because Suarez's form has been quite poor uh, I know he was kind of praised after the, the Spurs game, but the two most important things he did was actually not touching the ball. He left the ball twice for Messi to finish. So if, if his most important influence of the game is actually not touching the ball, it would suggest, you know, I think it's fair to ask the question, should he actually be in the starting lineup? And I think for the likes of Dembele, who, he is kind of making mistakes as well, but he's looking across and Suarez is making the same mistakes, but yeah, he's starting every match. Yeah, it's a question that Zach had, and you can answer this right away. With Suarez's form a weekly debate, do you think we'll ever see Messi play the false nine again? And obviously a lot of people have been calling for a 4-3-3 as Valverde's been playing this year with Malcolm and Dembele, but I don't think it's that time that Malcolm is going to be trusted in that kind of situation, particularly coming in for Suarez. And uh, in the last few weeks, his runs off the ball, the things he's been doing, and a lot of attention now has been put being played to the dummies that he's been working with and seems to be clicking with his very, very good, maybe best friend in Messi. I personally don't find that the club is going to lose, or Valverde in particular is going to lose much faith in in Suarez, 
even if he's scoring or not scoring, I think that they believe that he's still very much the number one without any contenders. Again, Munir as a good bench option, but Suarez seems to be by far and away the guy that's going to start out there. And I think spacing-wise, they want him to be there to allow Messi to have a little more space in behind him. So I don't think that they would take that chance to upset that chemistry and that spacing and the way that Barcelona is playing. No, I don't think they will either because with Suarez, you have like a focal point, which it ends up giving Messi a bit more leeway because he can sit a little bit deeper and then come onto the ball if needs be. Um, and I don't think that's really Valverde's style. Although, if I'm not mistaken, I think towards the end of the season, they left Suarez on the bench and it was a front three of Messi, Coutinho and Dembele, and they played really well. Um, I can't recall which team it was, but I remember thinking they looked really good together. And the fact that there was no kind of number nine, the players were sitting a little bit deeper which confused the defence as to whether to, to step up or step back. Um, so maybe I, I would like to see it again, but um, I, I don't know if Valverde would try it. Yeah, I think that's actually a good wrinkle that you bring up, Patrick, that it doesn't have to be Malcolm Dembele, that with Arthur now having this vote of confidence in the last few weeks, that putting him in the midfield, then Coutinho and Dembele on the sides of Messi, you don't see where there seems to be a dip in quality at all. The only worry there would be the spacing that all three of those players and the understanding that they would have as, as a front three and a front three trio. But I think there are matches, and again, the league is a tough league. There are no rollover games, and with Barcelona not taking the points that they needed to take recently in that four-winless streak, that Valverde might not take those chances. But if you're going to roll the dice, I think, on taking Suarez out of the lineup, Coutinho, Dembele with Messi somewhere in the middle of that field just having all that space you'd say hopefully, I think is, is a good shout there. Now, Victor asks, my question, with a clash with the with the leaders, Sevilla next on October the 20th, a midweek Champions League match versus Inter, then El Clasico that, come, that following weekend, do we legitimately need to panic if we do not take all of those points, and when is that panic moment? Well, having got the result against Tottenham, and while Tottenham did struggle against Inter as well, even getting a draw against Inter, I think, is a an okay result as long as they keep taking care of business in the other rest of the Champions League. Again, all you need to do is win your group. You don't need to be, you don't need to win every single match. You don't need to get three points from from each encounter. But as long as you wind up winning the group at the end of the group stage, that's truly all the matters. I mean, in as terrible as it sounds, even getting second, where we look at Dortmund topping their group. Just a year ago, a group that had Tottenham and, and Real Madrid in it, and then obviously who goes on to win the trophy at the end of the day. So getting through in the Champions League, and yes, it has been the focus, and we see that the, the players are focused against Tottenham, against PSV. They're, that is where they're really clicking so far this, this year. But against Sevilla, being the league leaders, as long as this season Barcelona are able to continue to get some kind of results against the top teams who all seem to be struggling. I and mean, again, Sevilla did not come out of the gate particularly perfectly either. And now they, again, they sit across, uh, they sit atop the table, but there's still so many matches to play. In the same breath, El Clasico is really where it's going to come down to, where if Barcelona against a struggling Real Madrid team that you have to say have legitimately been playing worse than Barcelona have in terms of their chemistry on the field, 
if they lose the three points in resounding fashion to Real Madrid, now let's say it's a 2-1 loss to Real Madrid, that's something that you can still recover from and wind up winning La Liga. But I think with Sevilla or El Clasico, three points have to be gotten there. It's it's not, it's it has to be a, it should be both, but if only three points are to be had, it's going to have to be, it's going to have to be in one of those matches. And as far as a loss goes, that a loss in El Clasico cannot be in demoralizing fashion and the kind of thing that does upset the locker room and send you in a bad direction. So I'm not ready to hit the panic button, regardless of what happens with those three. But if those are three L's and they get zero points from those three matches, I think that's really going to be a moment when you're going to have to slam on the panic button because that means in La Liga, you've now gone scoreless in six matches, which hasn't happened in a good many years. I'm not... I, Potentially, I believe, I think maybe 2002, 2003 that occurred. So it's been quite a while when they would have had that lack of form in the Liga, and that would be the worrying time. Yeah, I, I think four points from those two La Liga games would, would actually be a, a good result, I think, over those two matches, considering who they're playing. Um, just on, on the point of Real Madrid, though, like the, some of the teams they've lost are, you know, they, they played Sevilla and they lost. But Barcelona played against the Leganes and lost. So I, I think Barcelona are going to have to up their game big time, um, especially against those two teams. Sevilla look really hot. And El Clasico is El Clasico. Real Madrid are going to be up for it, regardless of their form coming up to it. Um, and I think that there's actually probably an added motivation there because if they can turn it around to beat Barcelona, it could, could them, you know, send them in a very good trajectory for the rest of the season. In, in terms of Inter Milan, no, you're, you're right. A, a draw against Inter Milan will be okay. Um, if they finish top of the group, that's the main thing. You don't have to win every match in the Champions League um, or in the, in the group stage. So, But, yeah, I, I think they, they do kind of need four points. Or even if they get three points, if they beat one of those teams, I, I think that's, you know, it's, it's a good base for the for the rest of the league, I think. Yeah, the question is from Charlie and Douglas. It's kind of the same idea that, a lot of these teams struggling with the start of the season, and we know it's a World Cup hangover year. Looking in the Bundesliga at Bayern Munich, this is their worst start in almost 15 years. They're now sixth in the table at the moment, and you'd still put your money on Bayern Munich to win the league when all is said and done in the Bundesliga. But not only them, but Juventus has had some difficult games in Serie A. We've seen stumbles, obviously, from Real Madrid, from Barcelona. And Valencia, who were flying high last year in the Liga, easily and clearly the third best team for the majority of the season. And yet Valencia are really, really struggling as well. With these big clubs, and I don't put Valencia in the same group as the other ones I just mentioned, but with a lot of these teams that had a ton of players playing at the World Cup and having rough starts to seasons, Douglas' question actually takes that one step further and asks, is the age of certain clubs or prolonged World Cup hangover, so is it time for other clubs to be moving into that spotlight? And I think the easy answer to that is that money is the way that modern football is being pushed forward, and the clubs with the most money are going to continue to win trophies and be at the forefront of everything. Now, a Man City who's had a lot of money for a few years now, we expect them to try to knock into that upper echelon of teams in the Champions League. And Liverpool's having a little bit of a resurgence that's going hand in hand with a, I guess you'd call it a decline of Man United and that brand uh, under Jose Mourinho. But the minute Mourinho's out and a new coach flies in and takes players like Pogba, you might see Man United return. But again, it's those teams with the money 
that you'd expect are going to round into form. So a prolonged World Cup hangover isn't that surprising, though, the way that other teams below them, and now you do talk about the levels of the Sevillas, um, and now while Real Batiste have gotten results and they haven't been playing great, but in the league at least that kind of level, the secondary teams that can push forward, Bilbao having a, re- a rebound here, those are the kind of squads that when the big teams who had those World Cup players are struggling, they can push themselves. And in the early start of the year in particular, all the way I'd say up until the, the Christmas or uh, the holiday season, that those secondary clubs in the leagues are able to push themselves into those top spots for a few weeks and months, while players like Modric and Rakitic, who were running all summer, are just rounding themselves back into the rest and the rotation that they need to gain their legs back throughout their club season. Yeah, and I mean, if you, if you get off to a good start, who knows where the season might end up, like Leicester City. Not hardly the biggest football team in the world, and, and they won the Premiership a few years back. Um, Deportivo, not a huge club, didn't have a huge amount of resources, but they won La Liga, and they, you know, they were a very competitive team for a number of years. So, I, I, I think where it comes down to is with the bigger teams, the bigger clubs, they have more money. They can buy a bigger squad, a better squad. Whereas with the other clubs, like the, you know, you could put out eleven good players, but the problem is if one or two of them get injured, it, it has a massive knock-on effect. Uh, just like Spurs actually are a good example because a lot of their players would be in the the Belgium and England squad, and they haven't looked right since, like we've seen against Barcelona, and um, they looked quite, they almost looked out of their depth against Barcelona, and. Now I know there, there's a there was a few players injured, the likes of Deli Ali, uh, Christian Eriksen, you know, two players that played in the World Cup. So, you know, it, it definitely does have a knock-on effect, and it it is good to see because it it opens the game up a little bit and gives those um, the secondary teams a chance of kind of building a bit of momentum, and then taking it from there. Um, and then we have the thing when when the bigger teams aren't aren't winning, you know, if they go two or three games without winning, it's automatically a crisis, and then the pressure starts to build. So I, I think the, the year after World Cup, the season after World Cup, will be the best time for a, a, a secondary team to really like push forward and go for the league. Well, let's pick up the pace here in La Ronda as we try to wrap this one up. We've got a few bunch of questions left. Both Ellie, Majid, and Papa all asked about transfers and we're talking this week about the left-back situation in Ferland Mendy. Of course, De Ligt and De Young out of Ajax, who we've talked about on this show many, many times. And the new name to pop up is Christoph Pajetek from Girona and the Poland forward. And Eli also asked, why are these transfers now creeping up now? Why are we talking about them? And Majib adds, what position are we most suited for getting in January? And you say center-back and center-defender, and obviously... There's different questions with each of those transfers, and it depends, I think, on the narrative of who's bringing it up. If you're worried most about Suarez, then you talk about a forward in Payetic. If you're worried about PK, then Delict is the one you speak about. If it's the midfield that you still hope to, that you think that Barcelona needs to grow through, and you think that we need more talent there, then De Jong is the one that that's being named. If you think that he's obviously has the highest potential, other than Delict, and then Mendy is mentioned, the left back from Lyon. If the worry is Alba. And I, I think there's 
certainly credence to all four of those names due to the depth and the age of Barcelona squad. But coming in January is a is certainly an inflated price, and that's going to be a huge price tag on all four of those players. I think Mendy is the most reasonable just due to the the amount of money he's going to cost. But if Valverde still isn't, you know, flagging it that that is a worry some position. I think the unfortunately, unlike Mendy, Delict and De Young are two guys that at Barcelona do not spend a lot of cash for and go after very very quickly and figure out a way to get this over the line with Mark Overmars. Those are two that are going to go to other places and other major global brand clubs um, just because of the talent of those two at Ajax. So I think Mendy's the most likely, if any, were to come in January. But for necessity, Delict and De Young, if they want them in Blagrana colors at any point in their career, Barcelona have got to act quickly and they have to act. start at least acting now. Yeah, I, I'm still a bit bitter about Dini leaving, actually. I, I think they should have tried to hold on to him. And he's not as good as Alba, obviously, but he's, he's a really good squad player to have around. But, uh, yeah, your point about Delict and De Young, I, I think they definitely should make a move to bring them in. And as you're, you're saying, because if Barcelona don't do it, somebody else will. Um, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of January transfers, but I think for the two of them, because they're so young, they, they will eventually have time to bed into the club. Although, I, I thought the same with Dembele, and he, you know, he still seems a bit unsettled. Um, I, I thought, in terms of the summer, I thought, I thought they bought pretty well, like Arthur, or like Malcolm. But um, the question is, like we've mentioned already, like that Valverde isn't promoting youth, and that does seem to be a problem. Yeah, because when you look at certain positions, particularly the centre-back position, with Umtiti struggling with injury recently, and even when he was starting, he hadn't been uh, his best as he was last year. Langlet just getting used to life in Catalonia, and now he might be a little bit younger. But Andre asked, do you think PK, and we're talking about the worrisome form of PK in recent weeks, is, is he distracted by the Catalonia's that by Catalonia's political aspirations and the ramifications of that, obviously, um, last October, just over a year ago, was the referendum, and we covered that here on the show at the time. But to me, I don't think PK is necessarily distracted by that. I think, the the again, PK himself is a global brand. He has a lot going on. Obviously, you look at the, the, the profile of Shakira, his wife, and what she means to not only the music world, but just the global audience she has. I think PK is a guy that's always been able to handle fame and knows how to deal with it and handle it, and that's why he's not afraid to say the things that he does. And I would say being away from the Spanish national team, if anything, has should ha- have helped to limit some of those distractions. I mean, just the hate he was getting because of his beliefs with Cata- for Catalonian independence and, and, and the rights of Catalonia. I think the PK, again, should be less distracted, but there just does seem to be something amiss with the player this season and he's just he seems to be slow off the mark whatever it would have you but just like Suarez I think the club and we as Kules who've seen these two players in particular the last few seasons just like Valverde I think we need to give them much longer leashes and much more of an opportunity to find their form again because it is just basically the middle of October and I think there's still so much to play this season and there is time for these guys to find their best again and hopefully they find it when those matches truly, truly matter. Yeah, just with Pique, like, um, you know, he, he does have a celebrity lifestyle, but it's never really gotten the way before. Um, we've also seen him have dips in form as well, and he's, he's always bounced back. 
I just I think with the point with defenders though when they make a mistake it's so much worse because it always uh, directly leads to a goal chance so sometimes you know it, it, it looks worse than it actually is but um, I'm, I'm sure he'll bounce back but just on the point of um, what you're saying about you know playing for the Spanish national team it, it, you know, it, it couldn't have been easy even for, for a professional as, as he is um, that, that must have been quite difficult to listen to um, so may, maybe it has just you know it's had a knock on effect but just further down the line and maybe the fact that he's not playing for Spain anymore you know it's given him a bit more time to dwell on you know his decision and, and why he made it well final two questions here and not going too far from the Spanish national team Ted asks why are there international breaks right after the World Cup is it a requirement to play or can a player with so many minutes this year like Rakitic decline friendlies and the first question is actually much easier to answer than the second one we'll try to get We'll try to kind of figure this one out together, Patrick. The first one, the international breaks right after the World Cup. Well, between the money now, now being injected into the UEFA Nations League, that means that there are important now official you know, sanctioned matches, not just friendlies, that are happening in an international calendar. And just when you think about it, it really always comes down to money when it comes to the, the international stuff and, and FIFA. And even with club football, it really all just comes down to what competitions make the most money and revenue and what has the most eyes on it. And so this Nations League is that's already been kicked off, that already happened last month. That's what that break was for. Now this kind of break, and now here in the United States, I can tell, and and Patrick, I'm not sure how much of a fan of the uh, the Irish national team or the public of Irish national team you are, but I know for our two squads, at least, if, if I were to say that, is that there are so many young players that you want to break through and you want to mold and you want to create this new generation if you're one of those teams that have missed the World Cup or if you're a team that had a lot of, say, older players like Italy did at 2006 and they just didn't seem to incorporate their young players well enough. And international friendlies is the time to do that. In the same respect... Obviously, we see for a club team like Barcelona, who are with each other and training every day and playing week in and week out, chemistry and time and teamwork, you know, that does take a lot of opportunities of playing together and it does take a lot of breaks and time to create that team cohesion, particularly if you change a playing style or, again, you put in a new major player into your squad and try to integrate him in. So that's why there are so many different breaks so that these money-making machines like the Brazilian national team, have time to incorporate players, not just Coutinho, but now Arthur and Malcolm also getting call-ups, and they're going to see themselves integrated in the post-World Cup world. And is the requirement for players to play, and I mean, or to decline friendlies? Well, I find that if it's a friendly, if you get up a little bit of a knock, it's easy just to say no and decline that and to stay with the club. But Rakitic, who has not had any injuries for Barcelona... He has a, you always do want to play for your country. And a lot of those guys, again, you take pride in suiting up in that national team shirt, whether it's a guy like Rakitic who's over 100 or a guy like Malcolm who's at less than 10 caps. Both those guys want to represent the, the shirt. And so declining international, it's not declining friendlies, it's declining international call-up duty. And if you decline a friendly, you might not get a call for the UEFA Nations League, and you certainly might not get a call for the World Cup. So a lot does go into it, and you have to always be showing your dedication to your 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 country that you play for. I think is probably the easiest way to answer that. Yeah, it's like a lot of like uh, professional football now. It's a bit of a juggling act, you know, because you don't want to upset the national team, you don't want to upset your club side. Uh, you know, you want to play as much football as possible, 
but also if you, you know particularly for the South American players that are traveling back it can be uh, you know it can take a lot out of those players um, but when you think of it like there isn't actually that much international football like if, if you get injured say around this time of year and you're missing those games like it's nearly a year before you know so say if you miss the games in September and October I think the next set of games are in March are they so you know it's it's nearly the guts of a year so there there isn't actually that many uh, international matches and I think ma- managers are always keen to play the best available players you know sometimes it comes at the cost of blood and younger players and they have to do that your point about Italy is good you know because it was a bit of an older squad then they won the World Cup and then in 2010 they were very flat um, I think that's a problem with all teams that have won the World Cup actually they tend to keep pretty much the same squad and then when they go into the next World Cup you know they're, they're never as good because they haven't blooded any young players and become slightly predictable as well so it was Germany in this World Cup, uh, Spain the one before, Italy before that, France before that, you know. So it, it, there is a bit of a kind of history of teams not doing well when they don't blow players, even even if they have won a World Cup. Yeah, and you also see players, again, sometimes there is just a requirement to get into camp and, and to play, even if they wind up, as we saw with Messi before the World Cup for Argentina, where he had that small knock, but he was still called up, still went and still watched his team play and was still a part of, of training in some capacity, even though he could physically play. Now, Mike asks, and again, Mike, our, our friend, not only a friend of the show, but also the host of the Blagrana podcast, and you can check him out everywhere on social media. He asks a pretty easy one. Are the boys saving themselves for the Champions League? The proof is in the pudding. And yes, Mike, the proof is in the pudding. Obviously, we saw against Tottenham. And there are those days when you do have your best, and Tottenham didn't have a few of their key players, but Messi said at the beginning of the season that it was going to be a priority this year, the Champions League trophy, and we are seeing that through two matches that Barcelona are prioritizing the Champions League. So I think that is a pretty simple yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think when you look at their league's success over the last decade, I think they've won seven league titles out of ten, is it? Yep. the last ten. Um but then, when you contrast that to the Champions League, um, Barcelona have fallen at the quarterfinal three years in a row, and it was won at the last three years, Real Madrid. So I, I'm sure there's, you know, that's a, a big motivation for Barcelona. You know, even if they, you know, weren't doing the Champions League and weren't doing well, I, I'm sure that would be the priority this season. But the fact that Real Madrid have won it three times in a row is is a big factor in that as well yeah that's a real good point well we'll wrap up this show with something that we're certainly going to be talking about in next week's show as well this story is not going to go away it's about Arturo Vidal we've seen him on social media and then we hear the comment about Judas and the way that Vidal is trending at the club Goss asks Vidal is upset with not starting that seems apparent will this likely cause disruption and maybe even seeing him transferred away from the club in the next window now Goss certainly hopes so and so Vidal, I went and did some digging on this in terms of statistics, Patrick, as, as, as I am known to do, and he has played eight total minutes in the Champions League, a, a, a place where, if you remember back to the 2015 Champions League final, he's the guy that started alongside Pogba and Pilo in the middle of that midfield, and he was a starter 
for Bayern Munich at their best. He was started for Juventus, now comes to Barcelona and has to take a major step back. Again, not just those eight total minutes in two Champions League matches, just two starts in the Liga. Four times he's played 20 minutes or less off the bench, and twice he didn't even get off the bench. He has one assist on the year in the 8-2 win against Wesco when the game was already much decided. But he's not on the field for his goal scoring and assists. He's on the field to control games late and to break up any momentum that the other team is trying to create late. And recently, particularly in the last four matches in La Liga where they've gone winless, Barcelona have really been chasing those three points and chasing result. That's why he was an unused sub against Valencia. It's not that surprising that Vidal, who's going to be brought in for a certain job, wasn't brought in because that job wasn't needed in that instance. And that's the way Valverde is using him as a squad player who brings XYZ to the club. And if he's not needed in those circumstances, he's not going to see the field. And I understand, and I think that's the tough thing about a player like Vidal, that he has that reputation, he has a look about him, but yet you should really empathize and understand why the player is frustrated. The the problem is going to become with the grace or the lack of grace that Valverde, that Vidal, excuse me, has so far displayed in showing his displeasure. Instead of internalizing it, and keeping it within the club and the walls of the club, as Barcelona would love to do, with Vidal going outside and kind of discussing, not discussing exactly with the media, but using just, again, these odd symbols and these odd little quotes to let him to, to let his stuff fester in the media, that's going to create a bigger problem, I think, than anything else. I don't think we see him leave in January. A lot of these times with these, these big-profile players... We see these sagas draw, drawn out for a while, but I would not be surprised, and not only just to his age, but if somebody doesn't find a way, because there, there was a, a lot of top, top clubs that would love to have Arturo Vidal starting every single match for them. And I don't just mean, again, the, the Man Cities or the Juventus or Bayern, where he came from, but I do mean the clubs even below that, whether it's somewhere at the top level of, of Italian soccer. I mean, Roma, if anything, could could use a player like this the Premier League is always looking for some players to help them round into form so I think Vidal this is going to be a story that's not going to go away and it's going to continue to happen if Vidal cannot accept the role that clearly Valverde has laid out for him yeah and it's interesting to note you know that um he was so close to signing for Inter Milan as well um I wonder maybe did that have something to do with maybe his background um I know it was, it was a knee injury that was stated as the reason, but um, I did wonder if there was other reasons behind that. Like, cause, yeah, I've now I don't know if this is true or not, but I've I read um, that his his background can be a bit murky at times, and his mentality, I'm not sure, it kind of fits in with the Barcelona mentality. Now, maybe that's a good thing. Um, like I remember uh, Carlos Rechek saying when he was manager that sometimes the atmosphere in Barcelona, you know, is too good and they need somebody that can kind of come up and maybe with a bit of anger, G up the players. But uh, sometimes I wonder, is, is Valverde behind these decisions on who they're signing? You know, there's that thing about he didn't want Malcolm there, apparently. Um, is Vidal one of those players as well? Um, but yeah, he did definitely, you know, to use a word like Judas, like that's a very strong word. Um, it it doesn't bode well between um, himself and Valverde going forward. Um, I think Valverde is, you know, he's quite calm and he can be very stoic. But you know, I I think if this continues, you know, it it will come to a point where 
one of them will have to leave, and I think it'll be Vidal. Yeah, I think the bench player goes instead of the manager. But I think it's also time for us to go, and this was an extended show. We had a pretty long one and a good one, Patrick. I appreciate Again, we had some technical difficulties throughout. We appreciate you, the listeners, for sticking with us throughout all of it. Obviously, it's been edited, and you might not know all the things that went on in the background. But again, this was a good show. We're happy with it. And thanks to you, the listener, for tuning in. Again, you can tap in your app and check out the show notes to subscribe. You can check us out on social media as well, on Twitter, at the Barcelona Pod or at HiltonD13. For me, and on Instagram, at the Barcelona Pod, our closed Facebook group where we got all of these great questions. Again, I, I cannot say it enough that with the international break we got a ton of wonderful questions from our listener closed facebook group tbpod.link backslash group deeper dives they also have discussions there as well you can help us out on patreon finally to continue making these shows at tbpod.link backslash patreon well patrick before i bid the listeners adieu thank you so much for coming on the show and again i just want to give you a quick moment to plug the pena going and the things happening in dublin yeah, so we meet for every match in uh, Buskers, uh, which is in Temple Bar in the city centre in Dublin. So if anybody's around in Dublin, uh, come in and check us out. We're, as I say, we're there for every match, and um, everybody's more than welcome to join us. And we also hope that you come back and join us next week on another edition of the Barcelona Podcast. And this one wraps up. Thanks for listening. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon. And for us of our side. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.